0: Chapter Ten, Part One: The Vagabonding Down the Andes by Harry A. Frank. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Part One: Approaching Inca Land. Small wonder that the traveler who has splashed and waded a long week through the mournful wilderness, living chiefly on fond hopes salted with the anticipations of an unschooled imagination, and washed down with river water should fetch up in Hain with a decided shock occupying a large and distinct place on the map this provincial capital proved to be a disordered cluster of a half-hundred wretched time-blackened tumble-down thatched huts, with the roofs full of holes the gables often missing scattered like abandoned junk among the weeds and bushes of a half-hearted clearing in the self-same gloomy forest and spiny jungle that had so long shut me in. The barefoot, half-clothed, fever-yellow inhabitants of mongrel breed stared curiously from their mud doorways as I stalked past, smeared with dried mud from head to foot, sunburned, shaggy with whiskers, and dragging behind me, by main force, an emaciated donkey, trembling with excitement at the unwanted sights. Or with fear at the unknown dangers of so vast a metropolis, from one hut in no way different from its neighbors issued the city school. The teacher, with a ragged cap on his head, and a drooping cigarette smouldering between his lips, stared after me with the rest. Every building in town, the church included, consisted of a single mud room, with an unlevelled earth floor, windowless, and with a small reed or pole door giving entrance exit and such air and light as could force admittance the government palace before which i tied cleopatra to the official bamboo flagpole in the geographical center of the capital was closed with a flourish of my papers i summoned the authorities to step forward and make themselves known but the maneuver brought only the information that the subprefect was away for a few days but he'll soon be back next week no mas or the week after at any rate entra y descansa come in and sit down the gobernador was likewise among the indefinitely missing whence the mantle of power descended upon the shoulders of the alcalde that worthy was soon produced somewhat the worse for concentrated cane juice but remarkable for at least two features. He wore what might still with some stretch of veracity be called shoes, and alone, of all the town, could have passed for a white man, had he seen fit to remove a stringy little Indian mustache. When he had read aloud to the congregated male population all my credentials in Spanish, a task not unlike that of a one-legged man, Walking without his crutches after spraining his ankle and suffering a stone bruise, he requested me to name my desires. They were modest room, bed, table, chair, water, food for myself and pasture for the other one of us until day after tomorrow. Slowly and bit by bit, but none the less surely, my requirements were met. A key was found that manipulated the creaking padlock of one of the thatched mud-caves with sagging reed divans around its walls a crippled table was dragged in and a squad of soldiers sent for old newspapers to cover it in due time and with the assistance of the entire population in a house-to-house canvas a gourd wash-basin was discovered then a gourd with a hole in one end from which one drank and into which the half-indian boy thrust a finger to carry it after filling it at the chocolate-brown stream at the edge of town. A chair was unofficially subtracted from the government palace. And, last of all, a four-inch mirror was pinned to the mud wall. I had barely removed the hirsute adornment of a week by such light as Hane, massed in about the door, left me, when a barefoot female glided noiselessly into my den, and announcing herself, the owner carried off the glass as too precious a possession to be long out of her sight. The first stroll disclosed the hitherto unsuspected fact that several of the mud dens were shops. One of them posed as a restaurant, but its restorative powers were at best anemic. Haine is probably the hottest and certainly the hungriest provincial capital in Peru. To retain its rank as a city, it fulfilled nominally the test of a place where bread is made, a tiny soggy bun selling for the price of an American loaf. Milk and fruit, which might easily have been superabundant here, were unknown luxuries, and the customary food of the populace included nothing a well-bred dog would have touched in any but a ravenous state. A dozen of us without families, including the alcalde, were dependent upon the restaurant, and we agreed upon a fixed ration of bread and eggs, the supply of which never approached even the normal demand. But the alcalde quickly formed the habit of sneaking over before the hour set, and by virtue of his official powers, consumed most of the provender. To forestall him, the rest of us took to arriving earlier until it grew customary to appear for the noonday meal at about nine, and to sit down to supper toward three, eyeing each other ravenously and jealously watching the cook's every movement. He who is accustomed to complain of the high cost of living should try the antidote of a journey down the Andes, where the high cost reigns supreme without the living. In these languid corners of the world where life is reduced to its lowest terms, food and lodging assume the first place of importance, and the mind is never free from these primitive apprehensions. No sooner does one eat than the worry arises as to where the next meal will come from, as each day's pleasure on the road is tempered by wondering what hardship the night will have in store. There were some evidences of Negro blood in Jain, though that of the aboriginal Indian tribe of the region was universal, in the percentage of one-half to a far smaller fraction in varying individuals. The men wore home garments of the cheapest cotton, patched and sun-faded, generally no shirt, with merely a kerchief knotted about the neck above the undershirt, and sombreros de junco. Hats woven of a species of swamp grass or reeds which a few weeks of sun and rain gave the appearance of a badly thatched roof the women wore no hats combed their raven-black hair flat and smooth without adornment and let it hang down their backs in a single braid like all the cholas and half-castes of the sex in the andes they dragged their misshapen skirts constantly in the mire of the street, and the floors of their huts, and were habitually even less cleanly in their habits than the men. The stage of education may be gauged from the fact that each government telegraph operator assured me I could not reach Cerro de Pasco by land, but must cross the sea, to Lima, and take the railroad from there. Haynes' chief pastime for speeding up the monotonous stretch between the cradle and the grave is the consumption of the native cañazo, and only those who rose early were likely to find a completely sober man. A sort of harmless anarchy reigned. A man merry with cane juice might sit outside the mud schoolhouse and keep the school from functioning all day long without interference. An amorous youth going on a drunken rampage among the huts, or washerwomen on the banks of the irrigating ditch, was avoided if possible, but was never forcibly restrained. As is frequent in tropical towns, there is little evidence of religion, pseudo or otherwise, which thrives best in the high cold regions of the mysterious Paramos. The mud church, with its tower, melted off unevenly at the top like a half-burned candle in a wind, had long since lost its cura, and served now as a provincial jail by the simple addition of a few poles, set in adobe across the door, and a few languid soldiers lolling in the general vicinity whenever they had no particular desire to be somewhere else. On the afternoon of my arrival the rumor floated languidly over the town that the weekly cow was to be butchered next morning but it was denied later that evening. I made the most of my day of leisure by acquiring a bar of native soap, of the appearance of a mud-pie and the scent of boiling glue, and spending some two hours in the irrigating ditch, stringing across the main street from a telegraph pole to a rafter of my house all the garments that could be spared from use in an unexacting society. Nothing was more certain than that I should start again at daylight, or the second morning, until news arrived that the river, eighteen miles south, was impassable, until the water receded. It was evident, too, that I must deny myself the companionship of Cleopatra. She hung, wilted and dejected, in the town pasture, and at best there was no hope that she would last many days further. Even if there were any means of getting her across the swollen river, I accepted the alcalde's offer of three dollars for the animal and her furniture and felt a glow of satisfaction tempered with regret at the loss of a good companion for all her faults that I should no longer have to drag my feet behind me at her snail's pace and be dependent on my right arm for advancement on the morning I should have started. The rumor again ran riot that the town was going to peel a beef. This time, matters went so far as to lead the octogenarian victim out into the main street, where the population gathered in an attitude of anticipation, a dozen or more armed with homemade axes and knives, the rest with pots and gourds. For a long time, the languid hubbub of some discussion rose and fell about the downcast animal. Then gradually the gathering disintegrated and scattered to its huts, each pausing at sight of a face to drone in that singularly indifferent monotone of the tropics: No carne hoy, there is no meat today. Some misanthropist. An agent of a neighboring hacienda, it turned out, had offered nine dollars for the animal, and Haim did not feel justified in squandering any such fortune for mere food. My rosy dream of again tasting fresh meat, and of carrying supplies on my journey, was once more rudely dissipated. The east was blushing from the first kiss of the bold tropical sun when I sallied forth on the morning I had concluded to start river or no river and went to wake up the restaurant keeper sleeping on his dining table with the precious bread box under his head. The alcalde appeared almost at the same instant from the direction of the irrigation ditch, his towel about his neck. He greeted me with a forced courtesy. His solemn promise to arrange to have my baggage transported to the river, in consideration for the low price of which he had acquired Cleopatra, had gone the way of most South American promises, into thin air. Now I reminded him of it, he would order a soldier to accompany me at once. The earth swung a long way eastward on its axis without any other sign of activity. Then one came to say that a soldier would not be sent, because Anastasio Centurion, returning to his hacienda, Algarrobo, forthwith, would be delighted to carry my belongings on his mule. An hour later he declined to carry them. Then he was prevailed upon by his compadre, the lieutenant-governor, to renew his offer. Then he again concluded that the weight was too great and finally sent an urchin for my saddle-bags. Before they were loaded, however, a dispute broke out over the ownership of a silver spur that had been picked up in the sand of the main street, and the town followed the alcalde to the mud-hut that served as a court of justice. It was also the city bakery, and the wife of the justice, who had put off baking the morning before, and was not yet mixing the dough, seated a corner of the kitchen table to the court, which, in the course of an hour, settled the case in the customary Latin American way, by deciding that the disputed property should remain in the hands of justice. A soldier was at length sent to round up one of the donkeys grazing in the main plaza. Gradually the disgusted animal was fitted with my former donkey furniture, amid the contrary suggestions of the populace, and the alcalde furnished me an order to the ferryman at the river to set me across in the name of the government and to return the donkey and aparejo a winding narrow stony path that wet its feet at the very outset squirmed away through the desert-like forest down there said anastasio wrapped gloomily in his maroon poncho and viciously kicking the spur on one bare heel into the side of his heavily laden animal is the camino real pero da mucha vuelta. How it could give more turns than the one we were following it was hard to imagine. My pack animal this time was a matron of forty, comparatively speaking, and correspondingly set in her ways. Within the first mile, se me escapo, as the natives have it, that is, she suddenly bolted into the thorny wilderness at the first suggestion of an opening and left me dripping with sweat and speckled with the blood of a dozen superficial lacerations before i again laid hands on her in an impassable clump of brambles and cactus anastasio tied her tow-rope to his saddle and for an hour or so she seemed completely resigned to her fate but evidently there is no trusting the sex at that age no sooner was she paroled than she bolted again had led me a skin-gashing chase of several miles through a wild and waterless solitude yet after all manipulating a donkey is a splendid apprenticeship for dealing with latin americans no better training could be suggested for the prospective salesman south of the rio grande the going range from quebradita to muy quebrada now along the stony bed of a meandering river, yesterday all but impassable, today so bone-dry there was only a bit of running mud to quench the thirst, now over a sharp knoll bristling with jagged, loose stones. At red-hot noon we reached the Huancabamba River, now grown to man's estate, where it swings round to join the Marañón and divides the never-to-be-forgotten province of Hain from that of Cotervo. A laborious two hours up it brought us to the long-heralded Puerto Sauce, where the government maintains a ferry. Five small logs bound together with vines, and manned by three balseros, housed in two reed kennels. Here we squatted out the day, watching the coffee-colored stream race by, on its long journey to the Atlantic, with all the impetuosity of the rainy season, the Government chusky had been sitting here nearly a week, his mail-sacks stacked and his horse tethered close at hand, only out on the extreme edge of the bank, where an occasional breath of tepid breeze tempered the lead-heavy heat and thinned the swarms of stinging insects, was life endurable my skin was a patchwork of mementos of all the minute fauna of the past week and an itching like the constant prick of myriad red-hot needles was relieved only briefly by each dip in the stream during one of them i advanced well into the river and it seemed i could have crossed it that even the peruvians might have made the passage had they mailed blood in their veins but then had they been men they would long since have built a bridge. All through the night there kept running through my head, amid the sweep of the waters, that illuminating remark of Kim, A sahib is always tied to his baggage. And in my half-conscious condition I resolved, when morning broke, to cast away all but a loincloth and a hat, and travel henceforth in comfort Aluso del País. But alas, the least formal of us cannot rid himself of all the adjuncts of civilization, and there was photography, to say nothing of food and covering for the highlands ahead to be considered. When dawn turned its matter-of-fact light upon the scene, the dream quickly faded, and I settled down to watch another day drag by into the past tense Beside the racing brown waters of the huancabamba the feeling was rampant that nature had played me a scurvy trick. I had bargained on following the cool and pleasant crest of the Andes, and they had crumbled away beneath me and forced upon me this unsought experience of the tropics. Not until morning of the third day did the balseros conclude to attempt to pass over the government people the mailman and his impatient gringo with the official order from the alcalde the raft had been dragged well upstream where we waded to it through bristling jungle and knee-deep mud the Chosky's horse long experienced in these matters from years of carrying the mail over this route was driven in and forced to swim to a sandbar well out into the stream for a long time the animal stood like a prisoner at bay against the shouting and stoning and shaking of cudgels of those on the bank, but at length, seeing no other escape, it set out to attempt the main branch. Its brute instinct would have proved a better guide than the opinions of more rational beings. Struggling until its snorting echoed back from the surrounding jungle, it fought the brown racing waters gradually nearing the further bank, yet swept even more swiftly along by the inexorable stream amid foam caps from the rocky passes above, straining savagely to reach the strip of beach that served as a landing-place, until, swept past it without gaining a footing, it seemed suddenly to give up in despair, and only its head, swinging slowly round and round with the current, was seen a short minute more, tiny against the race of the yellower waters before it swept on and out of sight down the jungle-walled torrent. The Chaski gazed after the lost animal for a long moment, shrugged his shoulders with the resigned "Bye," of a confirmed fatalist, and took his seat beside me on our baggage, tied securely near the back of the frail craft. The three brown balseros, naked but for palm-leaf hats and a strip of rags between their legs, each crossed himself elaborately and took a deep draught at Anastasio's quart bottle of cañazo. Then they pointed the nose of the raft upstream, pushed off, snatched up their clumsy paddles with a hoarse implication to the virgin, and fought for dear life and the sandbar. This gained, we disembarked and maneuvered to the further side, then pushed off into the main stream. It snatched at us like some greedy monster. Sandbar raced away upstream at express speed. The further bank sped past like a blurred cinematograph ribbon. The paddlers urged on by their own, and the mailman's raucous shouts and imprecations battled as with some mortal enemy stabbing their paddles in swift, breathless succession into the brown stream, and following each dig with a savage jerk that tore the wound wide open and brought out the lean muscles between their dingy skins like steel cables under leather coverings. The rules of caste are more important than life itself in South America, and both the man and I had been refused paddles. Relentlessly the further shore galloped by, the bit of clearing required for landing approached, beckoned to us tantalizingly, flashed on, and the raft sped swiftly after the lost horse. The Balseros, abetted by the Chusqui, increased their efforts to a screaming uproar, in which I caught here and there a fragmentary, Yuda. Fortunately. They did not put all their trust in superhuman assistance, and their paddles tore the stream with a viciousness that drenched us with its aftermath. Bit by bit, we strained nearer the hurrying wall of verdure. Each lunge seemed to lift the paddlers into the air. The cords on their necks stood out like creepers on a forest tree. Their yells, hoarse and savage enough to have frightened off any malignant spirit of the waters, came strained and broken now from lack of breath. Now we could all but touch the racing forest wall. I snatched in vain at a sapling, bowing its head in the stream. With a last faint gasp and spent stroke, the balseros dropped their paddles on the raft, and all five of us grasped at the vegetation that tore and lacerated us, in its struggle to escape our desperate embrace. When we had each gathered an armful of it, we clung so stoutly to this last hold on earth that the raft was all but swept from under us before we swung it up into a bit of cove where the balseros, falling at once into their racial apathy, drooped like wilted rags at the bow, while one of them panted weakly, a little more, señores,' and we were gone, sin noticias. <laughs> as lazily as they had been energetic in the crossing, the ferryman coaxed the raft up along the edge of the forest to the little clearing where I swung my saddlebags over a shoulder, waited to dry land, and plodded on along the blazing hot bank of the Huancabamba. Slowly my shadow crawled from under my feet, in this sweltering desert valley, now staggering through hot sand in a dwarf vegetation savage with thorns, now clambering constantly over steep headlands that broke into cliffs at the river's edge, and stumbling down again through veritable quarries of loose stones, my burden augmented with chancaca, a sack of rice, and a roll of sun-dried beef, as well as the lead-heavy tropical sun that seemed to lean physically on my shoulders became unbearable. I resolved to pitch camp in the first open space and wait till doomsday if necessary for some pack train susceptible to the glitter of silver coins. Puerto sauce was probably not more than seven miles behind me when I found between trail and river a narrow sand strip sloping down to the racing brown waters, and backed by a barren, stony cliff face over which the road promised to bring out in relief against the turkey sky anyone who might pass my way. Grass could not find sustenance on this sun-baked spot, but centipedes, and a score of other venomous things, might exist. Scattered along the bank were many sapling poles, the wreckage evidently of some hut that had been swept here by the raging river i gathered an armful of these and laid their ends on two small logs covered them with such brush and branches as were without thorns and had a far more comfortable couch than the wealthiest hacendado of the region over me hung a wild lemon tree the fruit of which made the yellow huancabamba more nearly drinkable about its trunk, within instant reach, I strapped my revolver and lay down almost in the royal highway, fully prepared for anything except a sudden burst of rain. Across the river in dense, half-cultivated, greener jungle were the huts of several natives, but they might as well have been in another world, for I could not have heard a whisper above the roar of the Huancabamba had they stood on the opposite bank, screaming at me. I possessed a maltreated copy of Prescott, and there is great compensation for the hardships of the trail, in golden moments, snatched like this, for nowhere does the mind grip the printed page so firmly at the end of the day on the road, after long turning the leaves of no other page than nature's. The afternoon passed, faded to a violent sunset and blackened into night without a human sight or sound. I took another swim, careful not to lose my grasp on the shore, and turned my lounge into a bed. There had been many rumors of bears and tigers in these parts. The real peril was the incitement to suicide caused by the swarming insect life whenever the breeze failed for an instant. In my dreams the roar of the Huancabamba turned to that of New York, and I fancied I had suddenly left off my journey down the Andes to run home for a single day, at the end of which I should take up my task where I had left it all. When dawn awoke me I refused to rise, but hour after hour passed without break in the drear monotony of the arid landscape, and mid-morning Patience exploded, and throwing my load over my shoulder, I toiled on. When, at the end of some fifteen miles, my legs refused to push me further, I struggled through the jungle to the river bank, but there was not a cleared space sufficient to sit on, much less lie down in. By wading chest-deep, I reached the breezy nose of an island in the Huancabamba, and made my bed on the damp beach sand. But I had chosen poorly, if choice it might be called. Without even leaves to spread under me, the night was one of unmitigated torture. My raids of crawling, stinging, tropical life made my entire frame a pasture and a playground. At best I got only a few half-conscious snatches of sleep, troubled with the threatening rumble of the river. For safety's sake, I had hung many of my belongings in the branches of trees, but not enough of them. Daylight showed a populous colony of enormous black ants in possession of all that lay on the ground. They had not only eaten to the last crumb, the changaka I had lugged for two blazing days, and left me barely a spoonful of rice for breakfast, but they had all but destroyed the homemade cover of my kodak. Had decorated my hat with a fringe and had bitten into a dozen pieces my autophotographic bulb, scattering all the vicinity with crumbs of red rubber. Another lone day we struggled upstream. I say we, that is myself and I, for a point for psychologists, since taking up my own load again, I could not rid myself of the fancy that I was two distinct persons, one of whom, was forcing the other to make the journey. In the night I often started up fancying the other fellow, the one who did the walking and carrying the load, had escaped. Could he know the truth beforehand? No sane man would sentence himself to tramp this route of the Andes, to suffer almost incessant hardships, the monotony of the same experiences over and over again, the dreary intercourse with the people so stupid so low of intelligence, that long contact with her childish minds brings with it the danger of one's own faculties turning childish, like that of a lifetime of school teaching. Only the American habit of carrying out to the bitter end a plan once made could force him on. Late the next morning the most exciting event of several days happened. I met a human being. He was lolling before a slatternly hut of reeds, inside of which a half-caste woman squatted on the earth peeling camotes. On such a journey the civilized traveler unconsciously builds a certain pity for himself which he feels should be shared by others. But he is sure of a rude awakening among these clod-like inhabitants of the wilderness, should a living skeleton crawl into an Andean hut announcing he had not tasted food for a fortnight, had seven species of tropical fever, and had been bitten by a baker's dozen of venomous serpents. The greeting would be the same, motionless, indifferent grunt, and drowsily mumbled, Vaya! With which this female acknowledged my presence. No offer of money would have brought her to her feet, much less have induced her to cook one of the chickens or even yellow curs that overran the place. As I picked up my burden in disgust, however, she murmured through her half-closed lips, In other words, uh, that I might wait if I chose to partake of the camote stew she was lazily concocting over the stick fire in the center of the floor on the surface the stereotyped invitation looks like genuine hospitality at the bottom it is less so than a habit tinged with superstition and fear of malignant spirits and above all the impossibility of an uninitiative race daring to or even thinking of varying a custom of all their known world it was no time to stand on my dignity however even had the foodless days behind me left any such support, and I sat down again. A ravenous two hours dragged by before the mess of native roots and herbs met the approval of the expressionless female, who tasted a wooden spoonful of it now and then, and tossed the residue back into the kettle. Several peons had drifted in, genuine human clods, apparently as devoid of intelligence as the hogs, rooting about under their hooved feet, and gathered about a flat log raised a bit above the earth. With the steaming calabash of the tasteless red-hot stew before each of us, and a single bowl of motte mixed with bits of pork rind, into which, all shoveled at once, we finished the meal in utter silence. Then the first peon, wiping his horny hands across his mouth, with a disgusting sucking sound mumbled, "Dios se la a formula repeated by each as we rose to our feet, however much he may prefer to liquidate the matter himself rather than leave it to so uncertain and unindebted a source. This God will pay you for it is the only return the traveller who sits at the tasteless repasts can force upon these mongrel people of the andean wilderness how far out of my course i had mounted the huancabamba when i picked up a rock-strewn tributary along the cliff-face only a professional geographer could say through the hot lands of northern peru direction yields to the accidents of nature and jaen had been as far east of a line due southward as ayavaca had been to the west when early sunset fell in the bottom of the deep valley, I had mounted several hundred feet above the level of the Huancabamba, and with a welcome coolness came more human manners, heralding the highlands again. Both Fructoso Carrera, and his far younger, though no less cheery wife, treated me more like a prodigal son than as an importunate guest who had fallen upon them out of the unknown. Amid the culinary operations suited to my case, they gave me in detail the recipe of the choclo tandas, quichua bread, probably used before the conquest, that finally rounded off our repast late in the evening. For the benefit of housewives, permit me to pass on the information. Cut off the kernels of green corn while still small and fairly soft. Crush them to a pulp under a round stone on a broad flat one out beneath the thatched eaves if it is desired to keep the local color intact, sprinkling water lightly on the mass from time to time. When the whole has been reduced to a somewhat adhesive dough, wrap in corn husks rolls of the stuff about the size and shape of an ear of corn and tie with strips of husk sit down on the earth floor in a corner of the hut, driving off the persistent guinea-pigs with any weapon at hand, and drop these packages, one by one, into a kettle of boiling water, supported by three stones. Let boil for twenty minutes, to a half hour, depending on the energy with which the faggots have been gathered during the day, taking care that none of the gaunt curs prowling about between the legs of the cook and through other unexpected openings thrust their noses into the kettle as they would be sure to be burned those who succeeded in beginning the task while daylight still lingers should also beware any of the family chickens climbing to a convenient shoulder and springing into the pot as this would result not in chocla tanda but in choclo tanda con Gaina, which is a far more expensive dish. Zest is added by a successful attempt surreptitiously to get into one's saddlebags a couple of the chocolatandas for the land of starvation that is expected ahead. Several times during the night I descended to alleviate my insect-bitten skin by a plunge in the clear, cold mountain stream that sounds in the Carrera family ears 365 days a year. In the morning I was forced to dress under my poncho with far less convenience than in an upper Pullman berth, for La Senora was already grinding coffee from desayuno on the flat stone under the eaves beside me. To my diplomatically framed question as to what I owed them, Don Frutoso replied, for what should you owe us anything all that day the trail wandered back and forth across the rock-boiling river first by little thatched pachachacas or earth-covered pole bridges then as the stream dwindled by precarious stepping stones climbed ever higher at times through stretches of mud where dense overhanging forests had retained the rainfall Mankind grew more frequent in this more habitable rising world. Thatched cottages were tucked away here and there in forty-five degree patches of bananas and coffee, and the pilfering of the tandas to weigh down my load proved an entirely gratuitous felony. The very air of the tablabamba, where I slept on dried cane pulp in an unwalled trabiche, hung well up the side of the new constricted valley, as humid and green as Hain province had been desert-brown and arid, teemed with stories of robbers and assassins among the mountains ahead. The only visible danger I encountered, however, was the notorious Sal Climb climate if you can, the terrors of which had grown daily more persistent for a fortnight past this was one of those endless zigzags by which andean trails climb from one river system when near its source to another revealing its nefarious purpose only bit by bit and subtly enticing the traveller ever upward in an undertaking he might not have the courage to face as a whole a rut piled full of loose rocks down which trickled enough water to suggest that the climb might have been on a rainy day Carried me into the very sky above and taking there new foothold, scaled doggedly on into the realms of eternal silence, where even birds were no longer heard and sturdy squat trees sighing fitfully as if struggling for breath at length gave up in despair and abandoned the scene to huge black rocks protruding from a soil that gave sustenance only to the dead-brown grass of the Andean Heights. "'Hay mucho silencio y mucho matador,' my host of the night had mumbled lugubriously. But I was aware only of the music of the wind, and the joyful realization that the broken mountains had gathered themselves together again under my feet, and raised me once more to my accustomed temperate zone by cold noonday a tumbled blue world lay about and below me, only an insignificant dent in it, representing that overheated hell, locally known as the province of Pain. Like life itself, what had seemed at its base a mighty climb proved here, at the top, to have been only an insignificant little knoll down in the valley, and only when one had reached the real summit and could look back upon the region as a whole after all was accomplished did each little struggle and petty suffering assume its correct proportion another step forward and before my glad eye spread one of those broad green inter-andean valleys backed by serrated black ranges their brows wrinkled and furrowed with age the clouds trailing their purple shadows across a panorama of little cultivated valleys into which i descended from the unconscionable summit by a natural stairway the blue-gray peaks turned to lilac in the last rays of the chill highland sun then faded away into the luminous sky of night as the mountain cold settled down like an icy poncho and with dusk i tramped through a long adobe street into the central plaza of Cotterbo. End of chapter 10, part 1, recorded by Elliot Swanson.